Hello, and welcome to the ABTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group Podcast Discussion of Pediatric Vestibular Rehab. My name is Maureen Clancy, and I'm a physical therapist that has worked in clinical practice for 17 years. I am joined by two experts in the field of pediatric vestibular rehab. Rosemary Ryan, PT, PhD, is a sole proprietor of Specialty Therapy Source, has numerous publications on balance development, the role of vestibular function and development, and the identification of an intervention for vestibular-related impairments in children. She received her entry-level degree in physical therapy from the University of Connecticut and a doctoral degree from Northeastern University in experimental psychology slash neuroscience. She has presented her work funded by the NIH, the Foundation for Physical Therapy, and the Section on Pediatrics of the APTI at national and international meetings. She completed work as a consultant on the NIH National Children's Study, serving as lead scientist on the sensory domain and a member of the Scientific Coordinating Committee for Health Measurement, focused on measurements for vestibular function. She has been on faculty at the University of Miami, Northeastern University, University of North Florida, and Marshall University. Jennifer Braswell Christie, PTPhD, is Associate Professor and Director of the Doctor of Physical Therapy Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Christie received her entry-level physical therapy degree at Louisiana State University Medical Center, Shreveport, and completed her PhD at the University of Miami under the mentorship of Dr. Rosemary Ryan. Dr. Christie's research has focused on identifying and treating vestibular-related impairments in children with balance and gross motor impairments and studying vestibular and ocular motor function in athletes with concussion. Her current research focuses on developing technology-based interventions for children to perform gaze stabilization exercises at home to improve dynamic visual acuity and function. Welcome, both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Excited to be here. Yes, thank you. So, <laughs> yes, it's wonderful to talk to you both. So my first <laughs> question for Dr. Ryan is, what types of vestibular disorders are common in children versus adults? Um, well, several epidemiological studies have been completed um, by various um, physicians primarily that uh, are ENTs, and the results were that the most common were uh, TBI or post-trauma, uh, 10 to 20% of the children, BPVC, which is benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood, affecting only children five years of age and under, migranous vertigo, and chronic otitis media with effusion. Um, others identified were sensorineural hearing loss um, since birth, uh, 2 to 5% tumor, BPPD in 1%, Meniere's 2%, vertigo with epilepsy. But these were all children that had been referred to ENT. Other reports, as well as these investigators that did the epidemiology, is that it is an overlooked entity and the kids aren't getting referred for appropriate diagnostic testing. Um, also, Somerflick et al. did a more recent study and basically said that the types of diagnoses differ based on age groups, whereas for the one to five-year-olds, BPVC and post-trauma and headache were the most common. For the six to 11-year-olds, head uh, migranous vertigo, vertigo that was nonspecific to vestibular, ataxia and trauma were most common, and in the 12 to 18-year-olds, migranous BPPV ataxia, and post-trauma. Um, there have been increasing reports of BPPV in children, which has been thought to not exist or not occur in children. Um, and also one of the strongest predictors of children who will um, present with vestibular problems is family history. 
uh, cochlear implants. Research has shown and various results between 20 or 60% have some disruption of vestibular function following the surgery. Ototoxicity, um, children that receive um, high-dose antibiotics, uh, and this really applies to the aminoglycosides that has been identified to affect vestibular function in the kids with um, cystic fibrosis and those receiving chemotherapy, either cisplatin or, um, I can't think of the other one right off the top of my head. In the 2012 NIHS Child Balance Supplement that we got them to include questions regarding children, the responses were received from 10,954 <coughs> parents in the U.S., and they found that 5.7% of the children in the U.S. have dizziness and less, less than 20% of those with hearing loss, and 20, only 26% were even being seen by anyone for the dizziness. So basically, all the children with head trauma, family history, any report of dizziness, cytomegalovirus is another uh, strong predictor, and sensitive hearing loss, or those that receive chemotherapy, should be screened for vestibular function. So that was a long answer, but kind of putting it all in <laughs> one area. Right. So it sounds like there's a mix between, like, children who have, like, acquired, you know, vestibular problems and ones that are coming on congenitally. It sounds like there's a... Right. Is there a certain, like, percentage there is a difference, more than one than the congenital is very few. Less than 2% of the children have a congenital um, cause for the vestibular loss. It's, so it's the least common. Um, reason okay. that children have vestibular problems. So it's, they would present differently, obviously, um, but the children that may have it since birth would be the children with cytomegalovirus, which um, affects children in the first trimester, which is when the vestibular apparatus is being developed. So it makes sense that reports have shown that 40 to 60% of children with cytomegalovirus, which is a large mm -hmm. proportion of children seen, um, for physical therapy, young children um, have vestibular deficits. And these really aren't getting picked up or noted or reported. So just a lot of research on what people are seeing is needed so that the awareness is increased. Yeah, right, so if, can I say Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, yeah, just related to the kids with CMV since Rose was talking about that. Um, it was interesting to see some of the studies done by um, some of the, by Sylvette Wiener-Vache, who is in Paris, who tested kids with symptomatic CMV because they had hearing loss and mm -hmm. found that they, they had vestibular dysfunction even in the, the hearing ears. So, like, if they had unilateral hearing loss, that even the side that was not impaired also had evidence of some vestibular problem and so we tested a bunch of kids with asymptomatic CMV and also found evidence of vestibular dysfunction in that group so that was interesting. Yeah and interestingly that is a virus that can persist it's not that it's done when the children are born so that the um, deficits in the vestibular apparatus are progressive so they're, they're even worse a year or two down the road if the virus is still active. Okay so like so if a child is, like, it's a congenital problem, like, what sim symptoms are, like, what, how would they describe how they feel? Because, like, in their head, they probably have never felt any differently. Like, what would you want to, like, look out for to 
see if that was a problem. And same thing with people who are acquiring it. I think it's easier for a kid who's acquiring it to say, like, that they feel differently. But what symptoms right. would they have right. compared to ones that are congenital? Right. Or the children that, say, are under five that really cannot describe and really don't understand what's going on. For the BTBC diagnosis, for example, it's a brief um, episode of severe vertigo, and they will usually sit down on the floor, cry, or cling to the mom or cling to someone, and then within a couple of minutes, the episode is done, and they get up and just walk around. So that's what makes it very tricky because they're otherwise not sick. They don't have a fever. They're not, you know, ill. So calling a pediatrician is going to be, well, he's fine now, so it just kind of isn't detected. Um, But if kids are um, struggling to see, any children that seem to have difficulty with vision or seeing or tilting their head to kind of see, they really should be screened um, as part of, you know, physical therapy examination to do a head and pulse test, for example, is very easy, very quick, even with very young babies, and you can quickly get a handle on or even just rotating the child while they're sitting in the mom's lap if you can get little goggles up to their eyes to see is there a VOR or is there not a VOR when you do that. And that can easily give you some information about, oh, it's not functioning or it's um, a low gain or uh, overactive, hyperactivity is hypersensitive is what you're seeing. So they could be screened and then, you know, sent on to the appropriate physician to get a solid diagnosis. So but once the kid is older than five, do they kind yeah, of more Yeah, the older kids are going to say, I feel like I'm tipping over or um, they'll say that I feel dizzy or I feel like I'm whirling. Like a five- and six-year-old will say different things. I had one little little guy who kept telling his mom, my eyes are bouncing in my head. And the mom just thought that was the silliest thing because she didn't realize that that could be real. And he was describing the sadness because he would feel his eyes bouncing in his head. Um, so some kids can be very um, good at describing exactly what they're feeling. I feel like I'm tipping, or they are motion sensitive. They the kids that you know we have difficulty even go to grandma's house because they cannot ride in the car. They still get nauseous, and so those are some of the signs and symptoms. They avoid the playground. They avoid getting on the swings. Um, that that could be a sign for the younger ones. The older kids are going to tell you. Or they're going to, you know, they're looking clumsy, the clumsy kids, the kids that might be categorized as developmental coordination disorder, but a piece of that really may be, may include a vestibular deficit, be it central or peripheral. So it should be screened. So just any motor delay, imbalance that isn't age appropriate, or if the child says, I feel like I'm falling down or I feel funny, um, and especially the older kids, if it's an acquired symptom, they're going to say, I'm dizzy, or I feel like I'm spinning, and then it goes away. Or they may have, they may or may not have headaches, for example, if it's a vestibular migraine situation. Yeah, and so I would, do you think I there's like add to that? Oh yeah, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Yep. Um, no, I would just add to that. Um, the children who are born with, let's say, bilateral or even unilateral vestibular hypofunction, um, the reason I think that they're not picked up is Yes, they walk. Yes, they do gross motor skills, um, but it's a higher level motor skills that are impacted. And, you know, they usually walk late, um, but it sometimes is not to the point where the parent would be like, oh, I think you need to see a physical therapist for this. You know, it's just, oh, my child's just a little bit 
you know, delayed, but then they catch up. But if you ask them to do higher level things, that's where they're struggling. And it's a, as Rose said earlier, it's a progressive delay that needs to be addressed. Do you think that overall, like, this is a, like an underdiagnosed population? Yes. Basically, yes, I think absolutely. That, um, that it could, you know, I think given the literature that identifies, for example, someone that's looked at children with sudden ebola virus or some people that have looked at the late premature babies who don't get any services because they're eating fine, they're, you know, seem to be moving along, and the attitude is, oh, they'll catch up type of thing, um, you know, they, they don't get picked up until all of a sudden they hit school age. And then um, they start either falling behind or they're struggling even like in a playground situation or reading difficulties because just like an adult who says, oh, I have difficulty reading, well, the child doesn't know that he should see any different than what he sees. So to them, that's how everybody sees. Um, and so they don't complain about it. And if they go to the um, ophthalmology, they're not going to pick up anything because the eyes are okay. Um, but it may be a vestibular issue. So I think it's I think it's significantly underreported and underdiagnosed. Um, several of the reports, the recent reports in the last couple of years, that even DPPV, similar to adults, they're misdiagnosed for two to three years before they, if they get with a physical therapist, a pediatric therapist that knows of vestibular issues and DPPV, for example, all of a sudden it's picked up. But no one would even think to refer them for that type of thing. Right. So, um, Dr. Christie, what tests and measures are used um, in physical therapy to evaluate a child, and how does that differ from, like, the tests that we would use for adults? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, so I just wanted to start with just a really easy screen that um, Kristen Janke, she's a pediatric audiologist from Boys Town, and recently published a paper that um, just kind of looking at just really simple predictive factors for kids with, and this is kids with hearing loss, so, you know, just that population, but found that um, if kids were not sitting by seven and a quarter months, that was sensitive and specific for bilateral hypofunction. If they were not walking by 14 and a half months, that was sensitive and specific for bilateral hypofunction. If their hearing loss was greater than 66 decibels, that was also predictive and parents that report gross motor concerns. So even if a, you know, a pediatric therapist doesn't, you know, know a whole lot about vestibular testing, those kind of screening um, cutoffs could be used to see who needs to get um, tested, for, tested further. But as pediatric PTs, we do the same test that we do for adults, but the difference is you have to make them interesting and fun um, for children. So you have to use lots of toys, stickers, lights, to get their attention. Um, the clinical head impulse test works well for kids of all ages, but to my knowledge, it's only been validated and reliability tested for kids age seven to 12 um, with sensorineural hearing loss, since that is the population that we typically study, since they are a very clean um, population. So we found that it had good test retest reliability. Um, it had good sensitivity and specificity. And what we did was um, at least six repetitions, three to each side. Um, to, and if they had greater than two positives, we called them a positive. Um, we also tried doing the head impulse test with children with cerebral palsy. We recently 
um, just finished a study looking at kids with CP and found that you have to be careful with that population because they do startle easily, and so the test may not be valid for them. Um, and for that population, we didn't find – we did rotary chair testing and found that they had a functional VOR, even though their dynamic visual acuity was abnormal. So that was interesting. Um, so you can do the HIT for kids of all ages um, just to see if they have a, a functional VOR for the lateral canal. Um, you know, many clinics now have the V-HIT systems, and there are several papers on um, – how on the normative data for children and the, the validity of that test for kids. So in the U.S., the only FDA-approved systems are goggle-based and um, are recommended for kids age three plus just because they're, they will put the goggles on um, and the goggles will fit their face. So there's been a few studies comparing age groups with the goggle-based system, and, but most have found large variability in the LARPs and the RALPs in the data less variability for the lateral canals. Um, and some papers are saying that kids have a higher gain than adults, and some were saying that they had either a lower or similar gain. So I think there needs to be more studies with kids using the V-HIT. Um, I wanted to talk about a cool new system that does not use goggles and uses a high-speed external camera, but it's not yet FDA-approved in the U.S. Um, Dr. Wiener Vache just published a paper where she tested 274 kids and actually published the, uh, the gain of the VOR of all the canals. Um, similar to other studies, she found more variability in the LARPs and the RALPs. So um, basically, it was, um, it, she found that the VOR gain increased until about age six, then slowly progressed, increased until 16, and that after about the age of 10, there was no difference between kids and adults. So that's just a little, you know, data on the V-HIT if clinics have that one. So that can be used. Um, and Rose, please chime in if you want to on all these. But my favorite test is a clinical DVA, just because it gives you that um, functional ability of the child to use their VOR or lack of VOR, you know, to be able to see when their head is moving. Um, so you can do this with kids as young as four years of age, and they do quite well with it. You do need to get an LEA symbols chart, so it has the symbols instead of the letters on it. But we found the same cutoff score applies to children and adults. So greater than two lines of difference between static and dynamic is considered to be abnormal. Um, a fun... Um, score that you can use if you wanted to use the DVA with children, and this is based on the kids age 7 to 12 with sensory neural hearing loss, is that if the child has a minimal detectable change score by more than eight optotypes, it's considered a real change. So that was, you know, something that you could use if you wanted to take a child with an abnormal DVA if they had hypofunction and do VOR gaze stabilization training and then retest the DVA again. Um, that would be good. So we found a lot of abnormal DVA scores in our children with CP, even though their VOR was normal on rotary chairs. So that was interesting. Um, Just to chime in earlier, on that. Oh, yeah, if I wanted to comment on that, because what makes what 
for young children, children that have lost some or all of their vestibular function before birth or shortly thereafter or say within the first three to four years of life, what's affected by them is the development of all systems because the neurobiology, the developmental neurobiology literature, we know that if any one system gets disrupted or is disrupted by injury or pathology, um, say if you're three systems working for balance and out of sensory vision, vestibular, if one of them is disrupted, the development of the others for that task that it works with vision, for example, <clears throat> is disrupted. So what I was able to show is that in the children that had no vestibular function since birth, but motor was normal, vision was normal, somatic sensation was normal, their ability to use vision and somatic sensation for balance was significantly, they looked abnormal. So they're not able to grab onto that substitution right away that adults can because the other systems aren't developing normally. And I think that can affect what you start seeing, what Jennifer may be seeing um, with the kids with, well, with central lesions, cerebral palsy, for example, that maybe the disruption of an oscillomotor or the vision system is disrupting the functional effectiveness of the vestibular system so that even though the VOR is there, the system's not using it normally because of something else being abnormal or it may be a central, you know, but so we know neurodevelopmentally that occurs for various tasks, be it vision or balance or various cognitive capabilities. We know that if one system gets knocked out before the critical period of development, and that's the key, um, then it disrupts all the systems, even though they are intact. And that's what can make motor, for example, be a critical piece of the evaluation for children, especially when you're trying to even interpret your screening for the vestibular uh, functional test or diagnostic test, is really seeing, you know, which may have disrupted which or are they disrupting each other. So is it a vestibular impairment or deficit that's impairing oculomotor development or is it an oculomotor or vision issue that's um, sufficient that's disrupting the development of the vestibular function. And so I think that makes children really very different, young children than adults. Yes, I right, completely agree, agree with that, yeah. Um, now, at what age does the vestibular system become mature for children? So, well, we know yeah. that... Oh, go ahead. Go, Rose, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think you have to look at it a couple of different ways. There's maturation in terms of, for example, what a VEMP looks like or what the VOR um, diagnostic measures look like. But then there's development with regard to its function for gaze stability and its function for balance. And those are all different. And then I'll let Jennifer chip in and then I can add in. Yeah, so by age two, the VOR, so the VOR develops rapidly until age, you know, by age two. So therefore, a two-year-old should be able to functionally use their VOR, um, for example, to, you know, do dynamic visual acuity. Um, for, for balance, and, you know, I was going to kind of go over the modified uh, CATSIB, which is a great test that you can do for balance. Um, and kids were able to complete the modified CATSIB, and we found a total score of 110. So if you do 30 seconds for the first condition, 30 seconds for the second condition, the third and the fourth conditions, if you get less than 
110, then that was sensitive and specific for hypofunction. Um, to modify the modified cat, so we do a blind, we blindfold them. Um, of course, the higher tech version of that is the SOT. And what we've found is that under the age of four, children will go with vision, even when vision is messing them up. So for example, condition three of the SOT, they'll, they'll step or they'll fall. They, they like to use their vision. Then between the ages of four and six, um, they go through a transitional period where they train, their brain starts to listen to the floor, if the floor is stable. And so that's kind of a weird period where their, their balance may look a little off, um, where they're transitioning. And then after age six, they should have adult-like use of, of somatosensory system, good use of vision, but they don't develop normal use of vestibular information for balance until after age 16. So that continues to develop throughout adolescence. And as Rose said earlier, if they don't have a vestibular system, it messes up the vision and the somatosensory use for balance as well. So yeah, as part um, of the okay. study, yeah, we did the CAPSIB or a type of the CAPSIB trying to develop um, using accelerometer, for example, to measure sway um, and correlate it with the SOT, et cetera. But the bottom line was when we looked at ratios, and I did that, and Dr. Hirabayashi from Japan did that, in other words, taking the measures under the six conditions for the sensory organization test or the four conditions of the, um, the, the clinical test, the CATSIB, that if you looked at condition two, for example, eyes closed, standing on the floor, um, and, and relative to condition one, that would give you a measure of how well they were using somatic sensation for balance. If you look at number six or number four, or number three on that test, when the um, eyes are open and they're standing on foam, you're getting relative to their condition one, then you could get a measure of how well, given that their balance is this under condition one, how well or how much are they using vision for balance and the last one, the eyes closed, standing on phone, would give you, relative to condition one, would give you an estimate of how well they're using vestibular. And when we did that in individuals, and in fact, the Wiggins participated in this, looking at everyone over 21, I looked at all the kiddos um, under 21, and children three through 21 were all able to do it. And what we found was the use of somatic sensation was adult-like by four years of age. They were using somatic sensation as well as adults, even though they may not choose to go with it. The vision was around 10 years of age that it was similar to adults, and vestibular, as Jennifer said, was about 16, 17 years of age. And what was interesting was that 30 was the cutoff that the decline begins. You know, we all think of at 60, 65, then we start seeing these mass differences, and so the, the scores for like 21 to 60 or 50 have been clumped together, but there's significant differences across the decades. So the 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds are like the 25-year-olds, but they're different than the 35-year-olds because the 35-year-olds with regard to the signal function are not functioning as well as they did when they were 16. So it comes in later, but then there's a decline, unfortunately, earlier. Right, it sounds like it's only at its peak for a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's uh, very fascinating. Now, for vision, that's a little different because the whole visual system 
and the ability to see and walk, obviously we depend on that for motor abilities and development of motor abilities, that vision and vestibular working together for um, gait stability, walking around, knowing where I'm moving, it's moving, whatever, um, that that comes into play or needs to come into play very early, by six years of age, is considered when the osteomotor system is done. It's the, the brain, the central systems controlling that are done. And so those two systems working together need to be in place by then. And that's why children on the DVA do as well as adults by three to four years of age because that, that part of the vestibular system is mature, but not for balance. Right. That's very interesting. So it sounds like there really isn't too much additional equipment that's needed in, if you're, like, testing a child. Is it the only thing, really, that you would need different is, like, the symbol chart? Yeah, for right. the, yeah, the oh, modified to be fun. So, you know, getting a kid to sit in the dark, for example, in a rotary chair, they don't like to be in the dark. They don't like anything on their face. They won't even put Halloween costumes on or hats on. So that's why Jennifer was talking about the test without goggles. Um, but also making it fun and making it um, and taking the fear away. So getting, you know, having mom or who is with them most of the time, getting them used to being in the dark and letting them do some of those things. But now with the V hit, what's nice is you don't have to do that. Um, but making it fun, making the whole, and working around their schedule. Don't try to test a young child in the afternoon. That's nap time and or if they're hungry because they're not going to cooperate. And you've got to be fast. Realize that you've got a very short period of time that a four-year-old's going to do anything. <laughs> so you may not get everything done in one day. But you have to be very quick, very upbeat, very, you know, oh, you're doing a great job, you're doing wonderful, and, and just making it fun and use stickers. Like if you're doing a, um, the head impulse test, not just look at my nose, that's boring, put a sticker on your nose and have them look. Or put and you, you can also throat. have them look into a mirror. You can also have them look into a mirror, add some stickers, and you can get a good head impulse test like that as well. Um, you can you can do the bucket test with children. You need right. to just to see what their SVV is, but you have to train them to make sure that they understand the instructions. So we do several training trials to make sure that they understand. Okay, this is what straight up and down like a flagpole means, um, and they should do that um, fairly well. And one interesting finding with that was that you know we found that the kids with central issues. And also, kids with concussion had abnormal variants, so they weren't able to set the bucket test consistently to straight up and down. So that's going to be a promising um, test to use as well. Okay. Yeah, and the FDA, I think research? the FDA is going to be great. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Sorry. Is there, has there been any research in terms of, like, different, like, the dosing of or frequency, like, in terms of children versus adults in terms of, like, treatment? Um, not really. Um, there's not really hasn't really been a lot of studies. Jennifer and I are one of the few studies that are out there. The trick is the difference though is also age. So I think that once you're if you're dealing with a child that's acquired a vestibular deficit after say eight nine years of age, then it's going to be similar to adults. And they, my experience with children is that quick, very quickly you'll get um, the adaptation or whatever it is, if they're unilateral or, or substitution, if it's bilateral, happens very quickly and they're able to pick up and do things. It's the younger kids that you then need to change because, like I mentioned before, if 
the deficit was early, then, um, for example, we had to really work on developing their ability to use vision for balance and somatic sensation for balance so that it could substitute for the lost vestibular function, whereas in an adult or even a teen, those develop normally. So they quickly can, you know, begin that substitution even without therapeutic intervention, for example. Um, but for the younger child, that's really different. So, you know, and then again, it's making it fun. A child isn't going to move your head as fast as you can, keeping the image clear, right? Um, and what do they know what clear is and how do you know they can really see it? So it's coming up with little stickers or, um, and making and controlling for the size, making it smaller and smaller, getting them to do a times one, but it may be that they're sitting in a swing or um, doing other types of fun things that you are essentially doing times one, times two exercises, but you're making it a game. So you're constantly coming up with games that um, like instead of using just a plain old checkerboard, you may use a shoots and ladders board for the busy background. Um, we've used like children's wrapping paper and then laminated it and used that different one for the less busy versus the really busy backgrounds when you're doing the exercise. So it's just making it fun for them and building it into their everyday life because like an adult, it's what they do at home that makes the big difference of success. So it's training the parents or caregivers in what to do with them and how to build it into their fun times, their family times, because they've also got homework, schoolwork, whatever work to do, so you can't just plop it on there. But the bottom line is they want to get back to work. Their work is play and school versus a job job. Right. You know, so Dr. Chris, is there any other, really like, technology that you use? Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it? I was um, – hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. I, yeah. Yep. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so one thing that I'm working on, um, you know, when we did the study with the kids before, the dose that we used was we worked with them at the school three times a week for 30-minute sessions for 12 weeks, and that seemed to really improve their balance and their gross motor development. So just that small dose without even giving them a home program helped them a lot. And for my dissertation, what I did at the school was three times a week for six weeks, of VOR training. So we did um, gay stabilization training. That was all that I focused on and found that that small dosage without doing a home program, it improved dynamic visual acuity in some of the kids, but not in the kids who were born with bilateral hypofunction. And so I really think that we need more studies. We need to do the intervention more intensely. So what I've been working on is some technology um, so that the child can read their favorite book on the computer at home um, and that when they put a rate sensor on their head, that as they turn their head at a predetermined speed, the words would appear on the page and then they could choose the word. So it would be so easy to get that, you know, suggested dose from the clinical practice guideline in on a given day because they're going to want to read the Dr. Seuss book or they're going to want to read um, other books. And I've actually been trying this with some kids, having them read um, stories that I sort of made a little video where the pages would change automatically and the parent would just turn the head and um, the kids seem to love it. So I do think that we need more studies on dosing. We need to see, can we actually improve dynamic visual acuity 
in these kids with um, chronic hypofunction or, you know, can we improve dynamic visual acuity in our central kids? Does the VOR mm -hmm. training actually help them? And then does it carry over into schoolwork? Uh, we know there's right. important connections between vestibular system and a hippocampus, and, and we know that, you know, loss of vestibular function not only leads to poor gaze stability and poor balance, but also poor ability to learn about the spatial awareness and, um, you know, could these interventions help with that? But there's so much work that needs to be done. <laughs> and even with the kids that I've worked with, I've had the parents who've worked with them to just create little PowerPoint things. And, for example, I've been working with a little guy he's in first grade, and they have sight words that they need to learn for school, and I can't just keep adding 20 minutes a day, and the teacher's giving them 20 minutes a day, and, you know, the kids got to eat sometime and go to bed. So we've used the sight words for what they're using, for example, in the Times 1, and I took pictures of different backgrounds starting, of course, just a plain background, and then the letter or the word, I could control the size of the font, and as they got better and better with the head movement and tolerating it and, and then changing the size as well as the busyness of the background and, you know, making it fun so that they could hit the, um, and Jennifer had actually done this as part of her dissertation, they would hit the enter button or you could just put the timer on it so that every five seconds the, the word changes and it changes location on the screen. So the child has to actually find it and see it and read it. And so he's doing his homework homework as well as his PT homework at the same time. Which is great because then you're like killing two birds with one stone. Exactly, exactly. So that you're not overwhelming the family with, because then you build in the whole guilt thing and then they have to choose, am I going to do the schoolwork or am I going to do the PT work? And you don't want them right. to be right. in that dilemma. Yeah, and for, um, let's say for um, gaze shifting exercise, you know, normally we would say, you know, move your eyes, turn your nose, move your eyes, turn your head, move your eyes, point your nose to the whatever letter. So, you know, what we could do for children is you hide um, different words all over the room and then you show them one picture or word and they have to go run and find it. So as they're going to run and find it, they're moving their head around, they're looking up, they're looking down. So they're doing gaze shifting, but it's not a boring, you know, look at the X, turn your head to the X, look at the Y, turn your head to the Y, or you put words all the way on the right side and the left side of a hall. You make them walk and turn their head and look and tell you what they see as they're turning their head and looking. So there's ways to do the adult exercise, but then, you know, to make it fun and functional. Right. All right. And I think it's just, you know, and, and like I said, from a pediatric therapist standpoint, many of the kiddos that we've worked with with cerebral palsy, myelodysplasia, for example, we work with them for months, years. These kids, whether they're born with it or um, acquired it, they respond very rapidly and very quickly, and they want to play. They want to go do stuff. Um, one of my goals was that they could go down the slide, you know, <laughs> but that was important. They could go to the playground with kids, and they want to do that. So the minute you enable the system to, to use a specific um, input or capability, the kids take off with it. They just will go. Yeah, um, great. most ch children with bilateral especially are not able to ride a two-wheel bike. And, you know, all their friends are riding a two-wheel bike. So, to me, that is such a functional thing that maybe we could um, help with our interventions, um, you know, to help them to be able to ride it. Because who doesn't want to ride a bike, you know, <laughs> as a kid? Um, uh, just really quick, uh, we were, when we were talking about the test, I, I don't think we've mentioned yet 
that there are some good standardized tests that pediatric mm-hmm. therapists routinely use that would be definitely a test that you should use for children with suspected vestibular hypofunction, um, the, the Peabody and the BOT2. So the brunick sosterowski test has a balance subscale. It's very difficult. Um, it's, you know, for your kids, maybe a six and up. Um, mm-hmm. And then if they were, and then there's also the Ghent test that Rose likes um, to use. Rose, do you want to comment on the Ghent test? Yeah, the Ghent was developed, um, part of the problems as a pediatric therapist that we all got frustrated with the Peabody test that most physical uh, pediatric therapists know. The version one had a balanced subtest. When they went to the second version, they really took away a lot of the um, balance tasks that we were really interested in because it was mainly going from a psychology educational standpoint. So um, this young lady in Belgium actually worked and developed against as part of her doctoral dissertation work and includes, and it's for children 11 months old up to 7 years old, and it includes items such as the Katzid, um walking on a balance beam, standing on single legs, pants, eyes open, eyes closed, walking on a line, walking on the earth, being able to maintain a posture while they're turning their head, which are all the things that we want to know, and they put it all in one test and standardized it for them and so that you can come up with a percentage, percentile ranking relative to their age. So what does a six-year-old look like relative to other six-year-olds without a problem? So that is a really nice, and it's just test balance. So you don't have to pick just one test. The whole test is focused on balance, period. And I really like it a lot because of that. It does need some work. I mean, she did her dissertation work, and it's nice to get thousands of kiddos tested and get um, more standardized in Z scores, et cetera. But because that includes the items like standing on the phone, eyes open, eyes closed, standing on the floor, eyes open, eyes closed, all of the tests that we would want to do, for kiddos to screen for vestibular balance issues are all included in it. So I really like it a lot for that reason. That's good. Now, is there any um, visual problems that kids have that would, like, impact their ability to participate in vestibular, you know, rehab exercises, like if they had, like, congenital nystagmus or something of that nature? Well, Well, congenital nystagmus, nystagmus, interestingly, these kiddos do really well if it's true congenital nystagmus that although it can drive you crazy as you're looking at them because their eyes are constantly bouncing in their heads, they see just fine. And the brain has adapted to that just fine and their vestibular function tests are okay. It's really more of a central issue. But the vision component, like I mentioned before, that whole um, interplay between the sensory systems during development is critical. So I think Oculomotor, I had one little, one little guy, he was actually a 14-year-old, who um, acquired a, a mild vestibular hypofunction due to a significant infection, um, an neuritis, but he had had a vision of strabismus since he was very young and really hadn't done anything with it, but it blocked the typical adaptation that would even normally occur. He was still extremely vertiginous two months out which is very abnormal, so in fact I and the physician were both nervous about a bleed or a tumor, but it was just that the vision problem blocked the ability of the system to do the adaptation that it normally would do, which was really interesting. 
Um, and then I worked with him, and within four weeks, boom, everything was back to normal for him in terms of his functional capabilities. I mean, he wasn't going to gain back the vestibular function that he lost, but he was now going back to playing basketball and could eat. He had lost weight and everything. So, yes, a vision deficit, and I believe this is true of an adult, is um, a significant um, oculomotor problem can impede the effectiveness of um, the recovery. And so you need to address both. You need to be looking at both and see which one is causing the majority of the problem. I have one little guy now that I'm working with, and he's got an oculomotor problem and a vestibular problem. So it was like, uh, and start working a little bit on both of them, but you kind of have to tease them out and then put the two systems back together again to let them work together. And so Mm -hmm. it's been three months now that I'm working with him, and he's finally... I mean, obviously at that age, first grade is when they're re- learning to read, sight words and whatnot. And so the teachers went up and oh, my goodness, he's just really gaining in his reading skills. And so it was assumed that it was a cognitive reading problem, and it was really he couldn't see. <laughs> so he had a reading problem because he couldn't see the letters and words. So um, getting that addressed has really made a significant change in his ability to succeed in school. That's great. And I would say um, that, you know, as a physical therapist, use your, you know, the cranial nerve test. Do your cover, cross-cover mm-hmm. test. Do your saccades and your pursuit. And if you find something abnormal, I think it's definitely good to refer to the pediatric mm-hmm. optometrist or ophthalmologist and consult with them, you know, before you do the vestibular rehab. Because maybe they do need some sort of a prism glass or, you know, something mm-hmm. to where their vision is okay. And so then when you do your VOR training, you're going to get the most optimal results. So I definitely think we should work collaboratively with the other healthcare professionals in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the young ones that are going through the whole development, you know, the vision system is still developing, so to speak. And so if it's been disrupted since they were two, then nothing's really working well. And you've got to really address that and work with ophthalmology, work with, um, those or do some of the vision training yourself or work with others who are doing vision training and make sure that you're on the same page with, with the kiddos, you know, and um, not being, not overwhelming, again, the family and the child with too much of whatever, but realize that the vision is going to affect the vestibular and the vestibular is going to affect the vision. And so you can't ignore it. Um, and I think that's, that tends to be more prevalent in children than adults, in part because of the development of that neurobiological developmental aspect that kicks in that um, we know it occurs in balance and no one's done the study, but it would be interesting and an interesting study to see does loss of vestibular function um, cause oculomotor and visual perceptual issues in kiddos even though the vision system per se is okay. No one's really looked at that. So it's a good area for research, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much work that needs to be done in this area, um, for sure. Yeah, it's exciting though. You know, with all the all the technology that we have now to test all parts of the vestibular system that you can do with children, um, and then just the beautiful clinical tests that we also have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I mean, every therapist can easily incorporate this. You know, a quick screening. It doesn't take you more than five to six minutes of screen. Any kiddo with uh, balance problems, um, school, reading, whatever issues, 
it doesn't take that long to do a quick cranial nerve screening and include, you know, HIT or even a DDA test if, if it leads you that way and see where are they with this. And so you can get a better handle. And it's a piece of everything else that you're doing with the kiddos so that it may not be the only thing that's the problem, but addressing the vestibular issue may make everything else that you're doing from a developmental standpoint much more effective. Right. Now, my final question is, is, is there any um, information about, like, the kids who have vestibular problems as children, like, into adulthood? Like, do they, you know, have any, like, do, are they more susceptible to other problems? Or, like, do they have more difficulty as they age? Or hasn't anyone really looked into that yet? I don't know of any study that's followed anyone longitudinally, and that's something that we were hoping to get done with the uh, National Children's Study, but unfortunately that funding got blown out of the water. But interestingly, I've seen adults who, um, at their, in their 60s, who had not had disrupted vestibular function since birth because of a uh, sensory or hearing loss, a severe to profound sensory or hearing loss, and they had done fine, and then all of a sudden, where the aging kicks in for everybody, for them, it was much more, it impacted them a lot more because when they're losing the, the typical aging process from the vision and the somatosensory and they didn't have vestibular, it really hit them harder. So it was just kind of teaching them about balance and how to use vision and really trying to keep those two systems as if they just they would be safe and not, you know, I think that they can be um, more prone to be a follower down the road and then have all of the issues that come along with falling and fracturing and, and whatnot. So, yes, and obviously then I think it's going to, addressing it early, it's not total loss. I think we can do really well. These kids can do really great. But when they're not addressed, it even impacts what they're choosing for their career, for example. You know, if they've never known um, how to move a certain way, then they're going to choose a different thing. They're not going to be sports, and it's not because they don't want to play sports and they don't like it. It's just that they've never been able to do it well, so they're never the kid picked on the team. So I think it can affect not only their play but where they go in their career, and then it may affect them. I think it does affect them as, you know, from 50 on, they're probably going to be at fall risk much earlier than, say, right. the person who has normal vestibular function. Which makes sense. Yeah, I think we need to. I think we need more um, sort of qualitative type of studies to find out how is a vestibular lesion actually affecting the child's life. You know, is it causing them to have academic difficulty? Is it causing mm -hmm. them to not want to play sports, or would they not want to play sports anyway? You know, that would be it. Would be hard, but I think that that is important because then we're going to be able to say, okay can we improve that part of their life with our intervention? You know, who cares if you improve DBA if it's really not going to change their life um, in some way? Exactly. So I think that that is, is super important, yeah. And, I mean, oh, obviously, definitely. there is a pediatric version of the DHI, the Disney Handicap Inventory, that has been developed and is freely available. So that, that's one tool that audiologists, everyone can use to kind of look at what is the quality of their life? The dizziness handicap inventory similar to adults giving you an idea of what is the impact on reading, on playing, on participating, how they feel about themselves. 
Which sounds sounds like a good idea. So, is there any other <laughs> um, is there any other thoughts that either of you have about that you wanted to share? Um, the main thing I think is do not assume. In fact, assume that any child with balance problems or even a mild delay, you know, a clumsy child um, and difficulty, quickly screen that vestibular system. Just quickly do a quick screen and see how much that may be contributing to um, their problem. And that those, the, the vestibular therapists that work with adults, don't be afraid to work with children. They don't bite. Well, some of them do, but, you know, <laughs> Um, you can do all the stuff. You just have a lot more fun doing it. Um, and it's coming up with the, you know, doing what you already do, but making it fun, making it a game. And likewise, those that are in pediatrics, don't be afraid of doing the vestibular. You know, jump in there and learn all of that vestibular rehab, testing and intervention, and start applying it and making it a part of your practice. That sounds like great advice. Dr. Christie, anything else you yes. want to say? No, I would completely agree. And then um, for the pediatric therapist listening to this, um, you know, go ahead and do the DVA and the cat sib. And, you know, maybe the child, I think there is a huge percentage of just the population in general who have a good functioning vestibular system, but for whatever reason, they don't use it well for balance right. or for gaze stability. So, you know what, those are the kids that you could probably help very quickly um, now the kids, you know, born with, you know, severe bilateral hypofunction, they're probably going to take much longer to help. So, you know, I think there's a lot more work. But, um, yeah, do these quick tests that we know are valid now and just screen the kids to see how well they're using their vestibular systems. And that is all I have to say about that. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and talking about this. I think it's a very interesting topic. Well, good. I'm so glad that the pediatric aspect is finally getting the attention that it really needs. And lots of work needs to be done. So for anyone who's just interested and, and sees, I'm always encouraging, if you see a bunch of cases, write them up. I'll help you get that stuff out there because it just needs to get out there so that people aren't afraid of it and people are aware of it. Well, I think we can learn yeah, from all the studies. Right. Yes, we need more, but um, we can definitely learn from those case studies. And then if you're going to CSM uh, in 2019, we're doing a couple of sessions. Um, we're doing a pre-con course on pediatric vestibular rehab, and then um, we're doing two sessions on Saturday. One is uh, Rose and I are talking about how to distinguish between a developmental disability, vestibular deficit, or both, and then we're having – some clinicians come and do some cases. So be sure and come to our sessions. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. yeah, so in January this year. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a little over a month away. So. Okay. Well, thank you both for your time, and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for asking us. Yes, I'm really glad. So hopefully it was helpful to someone. Yes, I'm, oh, um, yes, I'm sure it's very helpful. And um, I appreciate it, and have a good night, both of you. You too. Okay, and, you uh, too. We'll see a bunch of you all at CSM.
Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.